This is Noah Kadner, and you're listening to the Virtual Production Podcast. Kim Library is the chief technical officer at Epic Games, the creators of Unreal Engine. He was also instrumental in some of the watershed visual effects achievements in recent cinema history like the Matrix trilogy and Mission Impossible movies. Library began his career focused on his fascination with computer graphics. When I was growing up in the north of England, which I think I have a little bit of accent left, but not much anymore, it was the age of the 8-bit microprocessors and 8-bit computers. Here in America, it started with the Apple IIs and then Ataris. And I was lucky enough, my dad bought me an Atari 800, 8-bit computer. I think we got it in late 79. It may have been early 80 or 1980. And other than Star Raiders and a couple of games, there really wasn't a lot of games for it. So you have this expensive, super high-end toy and Ataris were known for their graphics. So I taught myself how to program graphics and make little video games and just stuff to keep myself and my friends amused. That was where the passion for computer graphics came. And I was fascinated at how do you get a computer to make a picture? Instead of going through the classical art training, because even studying computers at university in the 80s, it was very early days. So computer graphics was its infancy. The bulk of what you would learn would be a little bit at university, but a lot of it just being a hobbyist and programming stuff up. So that Atari got me to have the bug to be into computer graphics. And then at university, I was very lucky. In my final year project, they let me use this 128 processor transputer computer, which is like millions of pounds of hardware at the time. You're watching a graphic sequence of an InMOS transputer. And uh, I wrote a rasterizer, so a little triangle rendering system. Upon completing school, Library realized he needed to make some specific choices in order to continue his professional development. I'm trying to work out, well, what do I do? Do I go into video games or do I go into movies? And at the time, CGI, computer graphics, there really wasn't much of it around in video games at the time. This is before the 3D effects cards or any of the fancy consoles that started to introduce 3D, like the uh, Nintendo 64. So I'm like, you know what, I'll go into movies because movies looks like there's going to be a revolution. By that time, the Pixar imaging unit had been formed at Lucasfilm. They'd done their Wally B little short. And ILM had started working on computer graphic stuff in Star Trek. What exactly is Genesis? Genesis is life from lifelessness. And young Sherlock. What have I got myself into? The adventure of a lifetime, Watson. So, started off as a computer programmer. My first proper job was at the computer film company in London. And that would have been, I think, 91 is when I went to CFC. And in them days, the early days of computer graphics, everything was very proprietary. You know, there were silicon graphics machines around, but almost none of them in London. So pretty much everything we did in the early years was, you know, code it yourself. I was a software engineer, obviously. And worked there for a few years and eventually got the opportunity to work for Kodak, who were opening up CineSight in Soho in London. And I was able to get into how do you make synthetic images inside a computer and how do you make them real? So I worked there for quite a few years and gradually made the transition from being a software engineer and a technologist into a supervisor. So I supervised on a show with my good friend Richard Jurisic, uh, Event Horizon, was sort of my first supervision gig. At 0300 this morning, TDRS picked up an automated navigation beacon broadcasting at two-minute intervals in Neptune orbit. Library spent several years working as a visual effects supervisor and then became part of one of the most influential films of all time and an early subset of virtual production with The Matrix. The pill you took is part of a trace program. What does that mean? It means buckle your seatbelt, Dorothy. 
because Kansas is going bye-bye. Experiments done during that production would lead toward the path of real-time animation. So George Bushokov, who was uh, one of my colleagues, he worked out how to do real-time texture mapping on a PC at the time that was able to take the photogrammetry assets that we'd had from the Matrix and then subsequently a movie called Mission Impossible and get that stuff to run real-time so that we could do on-set visualization. The first movie we really used it on was Mission Impossible 2. There's a scene where Tom Cruise jumps out of the top of a very tall skyscraper in Sydney, Australia and pulls a parachute. Now, obviously, Tom can jump pretty high, and he did. He did all his own stunts in that movie. But we needed to put a city around a green screen to replace a green screen environment with a city. So that was sort of our first use of real-time technology for visualization on set. I guess we call it virtual production nowadays. Just because we spent too many movies where the lighting on the green screen just didn't really match what was going to go in the background. So we thought that if we could bring a real-time visualization and a real-time composite to the set, that the directors of photography, everybody could get an idea of what the shot was going to look like in post. So we would have the minimum amount of cleanup on the back end when the shots come together and they will look more realistic. We built this uh, virtual set, all custom code, no off-the-shelf software at all and took our photogrammetry scans of downtown Sydney, Australia, reprojected on a super simple geometry, and was able to do a real-time visualization of showing the environment of downtown Sydney over all these green screen shots. And the sequence, even today, it looks pretty good for how old it is. Library needed to do a live animation performance in concert with actor Tom Cruise's stunt work to make the sequence work. Tom, he does a lot of his own stunts, and it's a I think it was like a 65-foot jump off the top of a platform. And I'm on set running this little computer program that we'd made that, you know, we didn't have live camera match moving in that day and age. You know, this is, I guess it was 2000, the summer of 2000 we shot that. And what we did is we made like a keyboard and mouse control system that allowed me to do a live match move. So in the same way as a musician will ride the faders when recording an orchestra, I'm riding this keyboard with the mouse and just basically like playing a video game to try and do my best to match move the camera move as we were shooting him as he was jumping down towards the ground on downtown Sydney. So Tom would do his jumps and then he realized we had this visualization and we had video playback and he would come to me and go, what do you think? Did it work? I'm like, it looks pretty good. And he had, I think it was his nephew. There was some relative of his there on the set. He's like, it looks like a video game. Can you have a go? And we let his nephew run the system. And then I'm able to control the typical visual effects on set stuff and not driving these keyboards. And uh, yeah, it was uh, Tom's nephew driving a bunch of the virtual production shots. After The Matrix and Mission Impossible, Liberi spent several years at Industrial Light and Magic, the visual effects company founded by George Lucas. While there, he tapped into his computer graphics and programming backgrounds to work on technology development. My job was just as a visual effects supervisor that understood technology. I think the closest person to me at ILM at the time was John, John Knoll, and I supervised movies, but I always really cared about pushing the edge on computer graphics. So. The big show that I did the first round at being at ILM was a, a movie called Poseidon, where we did a massive cruise ship, completely computer generated with global illumination and a bunch of complex mental ray ray tracing. Park to starboard, starboard engines, full of stars! Starboard engines, full of stars! I got it, I got it! Come on! They would always put me on the shows that were sort of technical, bleeding edge. And then towards the latter time at ILM, I got pretty friendly with the team at LucasArts and we started to experiment with, is there a way 
to visualize a movie in a way that helps filmmakers understand lighting and composition in a more sophisticated way that we would have done in previous on movies like The Matrix, yeah? So we did a bunch of experiments with LucasArts and their Ronin game engine. And then I got the bug there and it was fun because you've got live actors and you're seeing, you know, when you see graphics that you're making, as opposed to going through the classic visual effects process that can take months from first starting a shot to seeing the final result, when you're seeing it in front of your eyes, there's something magical about that. So we just kept them experiments going and we formed a researchy team, the Advanced Development Group, which was responsible for can we bridge the gap between what ILM can do in non-real time in visual effects and what you can do in a game engine. Libraries work with real-time animation and game engine technologies while at ILM ultimately led to his current position at Epic Games. You know, that sort of was the logical stepping stone for me coming to Epic, because to be at Epic is now you're helping make the engine that millions of people have access to, and you really can change the way that the industry works. So it was awesome at ILM. It was great. We had an awesome team, a lot of fun, and they're still great partners, and we do awesome pioneering work with them. But it was really cool to be part of making this you know, what's the next wave of entertainment? What is meta entertainment? What is the crossover between films and games and TV? And how can these technologies help tell interesting stories in new ways and help creatives be able to iterate more on their projects? Libraire sees the possibilities of real-time and game engine technology to be virtually limitless as computing processing power continues to increase. There's still a big divide in terms of the computational time for a real-time system that you're willing to wait. We have to do things in milliseconds, you know, typically 33 milliseconds on a 30 frames a second content or 42 milliseconds for film content if you're trying to make something real-time. And in movies, there really hasn't been other than oh my god, then render farms are very expensive. There really isn't a controlling factor that makes you be super efficient about it. So I still hear of movies that can take 10 hours a frame to render. So 33 milliseconds versus 10 hours to render is a massive, massive difference. So the engine we're getting, especially with all the new technology that we have with uh, Nanite and Lumen, we're getting pretty close to photoreal. But the way we achieve it is that there's a bunch of interesting caveats that, to be honest, creatively, they're not that limiting. You just have to get used to them. It's a little bit like making a visual effects shot 20 years ago, we were only just beginning to experiment with image-based lighting and global illumination and ray tracing. And these techniques are just coming into the real-time world. And you have to sort of think about, hey, how are we setting this thing up? How are we building this asset? Libreri also observes how success in real-time hinges on a creative team's willingness to lean into its strengths and understand its limitations. The teams that have embraced it understand the power of iteration. And this idea that an auteur filmmaker comes along and has an idea in their mind's eye and you just make exactly what was in their eye, that, that's not really modern filmmaking. There are still some fantastic directors out there that can work like that. But actually, there are still filmmakers that tell amazing stories through iteration and experimentation and you know, even reshoots. You remember in the old days in filmmaking, it used to be this, oh my God, they did reshoots. Oh, they're pathetic. Why would they do reshoots? Do they not know what they're making? But nowadays, it's a common part of making a movie. It's a way to iterate and refine. And with the real-time technology, whether you're just making an animatic or you're doing final pixel animated content, just being able to see it in front of your eyes and try things out without the penalty. You know, I spent 20 years in visual effects where you'll be like, the director's like, you know, I've got a slightly better idea. What do you think of this? And you'd always be, oh, sorry. 
can't really do that. Uh, we don't really have the time. We'd have to start again. Well, starting again is not, you know, you still have to build the assets. You still have to plan ahead. But adjusting lighting, changing composition on a shot, even happy accidents. One of the things that I find liberating with working with real-time technology and right now our current project, um, I can't tell you what it is, but uh, you can find out for yourself in a few months. That project, um, we have a big action sequence in it. And instead of trying to animate every shot by hand, we built simulation systems. So we built a simulated world and drivable vehicles, and we had a bunch of fun chasing each other's around and, and laying down cool paths and action and destruction. And then you put cameras on it because, you know, we can record all that. But once it happens, it very much happens like a simulation where you're like, stop, rewind, playback, change the camera angle, adjust this piece of animation. So that's how we've been making cinematics for our latest demo, and it's been absolutely fantastic. Because it means you have these happy accidents, which, you know, live action filmmaking, when you work on a big set with lots of cool pyrotechnics and not a lot of post-production, you find these things that you're like, wow, who would have thought that this would happen like that way? Although Luberia's official title at Epic is Chief Technology Officer, he believes there's much more to his work than what his title implies. I like to think of my job as more of creative technology officer. You know, we have an awesome engine team and my good friend Nick Penwarden runs an amazing engineering team and all of us are super close, especially when we're doing these cutting edge demos because we have to build new features and there's always a little bit of a scary time when he's like, is it going to work? Is it going to work? But the cool part of it is that I'm just lucky in that I think I'm okay at running big, huge, crazy pie in the sky projects and working with engineers and technologists to actually, and I think it's, you know, it's that background of being a programmer all them years ago, that at least I can empathize with what they have to do. We can problem solve together. So I kind of like that the fact that my role, it evolved over time into this bridge between our amazing engine team and our amazing artists. And I even get involved in little bits and pieces on the games as well that we make. So it's great. Yeah, creative technology officer, that's what I say it stands for, as opposed to chief technology officer. With Lebray's extensive visual effects and real-time background, it's only natural that he has also gravitated towards in-camera visual effects and LED volumes. The way we're structured is that obviously we have our Fortnite team and every game that we're working on has a games team. We have an engine team and then we have this special projects unit that works underneath me that is designed to help work with the engineering team to find the future of Unreal Engine and also work on cutting edge projects that we think that the engine or the future version of the engine could be beneficial to. So some cases that's very gameplay oriented. We did the chaos demo with all the destruction and the big robots. Time to take these chain guns for a spin. We built Robo Recall. Welcome, Agent 34. Congratulations on your promotion to the ranks for Robo Ready Recall Specialist. Jerome, who's our lead artist on the team, built Robo Recall, and actually a lot of that team now are on Fortnite. We're there to push the envelope. So part of that was digital humans. We did the Senewer demo all them years ago. We did Siren. Hello, I'm Siren. I was created by an international team of artists and engineers. And then because we make a lot of internal content ourselves, lots of cinematic content for Fortnite, we built little virtual production tools. Epic's development work in ever-improving real-time animation caught Hollywood's notice and ultimately resulted in the Disney Plus streaming series The Mandalorian. When we started to experiment with ray tracing, John Favreau paid attention and was asking us whether or not we could take that level of rendering capabilities and bring something special to what he was doing on Mandalorian. So we're like, yeah, John's cool. He's a visionary filmmaker. And honestly, he's got enough weight now at the studios that the crazy ideas, the ones that are going to change the world, I think John can 
push through. So we chose to work on that project. And ever since then, my group has a decent amount of involvement in specking where the tools are going, understanding filmmakers' needs. Half of our team here in special projects is from the film industry. So we have a lot of empathy and a lot of experience on building large-scale environments, doing photoreal lighting. So a Mandalorian, the entire demo team worked on Mandalorian alongside ILM to get their system up and running for the first season. And the recent version of Unreal Engine 427, which has a lot of virtual production stuff, that's this team working in combination with my friend Alistair Cool, who just joined Epic, to really make sure that the challenges that filmmakers were having adapting to virtual production were starting to get really solved in Unreal Engine. So we wanted better resolution, higher quality lighting, fast lighting. If a DP wants to change his mind, you should be able to change his mind on the set. So we put a big emphasis on scalability and fast turnaround on lighting changes. And then with the next version of the engine, Unreal Engine 5 with Nanite and Lumen, I think we're going to go to the next level because Nanite really enables geometry that is movie quality geometry to be visualized within the engine. Nanite is a virtual geometry system, a way of only drawing the amount of geometry that you can see at the detail level down to the pixel level. And then you combine that with Lumen, getting global illumination and automatic bounce light as part of the system is going to be super, super interesting for filmmakers because they'll be able to do lighting adjustments within a shot. Dynamic global illumination, beautiful bounce lighting instantaneously. Right now, the majority of people working in virtual production, they do a light baking process, whether they're doing it external, which is the way ILM has been doing it, or within their own pipeline, or whether they do it within the engine. Light baking has been the answer. So for 427, what we did is, how do we make that be a five-minute process? So that a DP can come, get a quick preview, see where everything's going to be, and then say, okay, cook it, and it's ready to shoot within a few minutes. So we did that, but next time round with UE5, you're gonna be able to have dynamic skies, dynamic objects, lighting. You have an explosion and you want explosion light to go onto the set. You'll be able to do all that stuff in the next version of Unreal Engine. It's pretty exciting times. So yes, we get pretty involved in the virtual production stuff. We spec it, we work with the engineering team, and we'll also put artists, if there's a project that wants to push the envelope and they want our help from a customer, we will put people onto that project to help them get over the hill and find the new wonderful pastures that are out there in virtual production. Library sees the worlds of gaming and visual effects as highly complementary. I think there is a lot of compliment. I think that the traditional film industry has some evolution to do to really understand the power of what a game engine actually brings. Is A game engine is built to build simulated worlds that you can program cause and effect in. You can make cars drivable, you can make a weather system, you want to make snow that not just generates snow particles but lands snow on the ground, you can do that in a game engine. It's built to program simulated emulations of the real world or whatever crazy stuff you want to do in your fantasy world. And we're seeing people realize like, this motorbike chase, could we just make a motorbike and drive it with a stunt motorcycle? Yes, you could do that. Making programmable systems for virtual production, I think, is the next big way that it's, it's starting to click. You can see people are getting it. As they start to understand that it's different, using a game engine from using a Maya or a traditional DCC package. Across the planet now, there's hundreds of virtual production teams using the engine for LED wall production, for even post-production visual effects. At this point, people are using it for that. And you start to see as they learn, they get more and more into programmable content. And it's exciting to see them start to do things that we didn't even imagine. So there is a lot of overlap. It's just that the film business is only just discovering the potential. There are things that in video games you're going to do that you're probably not going to do in virtual production, but actually there's, a, I would say 90% of it overlaps. Mm -hmm.
Library sees the state of entertainment as evolving into new forms and ways of interacting with the story. Modern audiences grew up with a passion for storytelling, watching movies, watching TV shows, socializing and talking about these things, and playing games. And I think that as the technology evolves, I think consumption habits are going to merge in. I don't think a teen today consuming movies thinks of movies and comic books and games as all these totally different things. They think of them as just as a part of a spectrum of entertainment. And I think what you're going to see is the next generation of filmmakers aren't wanting to just tell a traditional story. They want to be able to offer their fans to go deeper, to visit them spaces, to either be them characters or interact with them characters. And I think we'll see a new generation of media that crosses boundaries and a franchise when it's born, as opposed to being born and then getting adapted from a game to a movie or a movie to a game, and they don't really cross over that much. I think you'll see studios and creators making stuff as a holistic IP that's designed to go across all the boundaries. And that's one of the reasons that we find virtual production and filmmaking actually pretty exciting. Not only does it help us push the envelope in terms of the visuals and technical capabilities of the engine, it brings in these new filmmakers that see the possibilities like, wow, we can go back there and make a game out of that. It's like, yeah, you can, yeah. Or a social experience or a museum installation or revisit that world a thousand times over if you want to, or give it to the community and let the community make an experience. As a firm believer in the power of community, Library sees open access to cutting-edge tools as a cornerstone of Epic's strategy. So I think one of the cool things is that right now, Unreal Engine's free. You can download it and you can teach yourself whichever aspect you find interesting. And I think one of the lovely things that we're seeing right now is that people who invest the time to learn the engine can go into pretty much any industry that uses the engine. We've seen people moving from industrial visualization to filmmaking, to virtual production, to game making, back and forwards. So I think that the real advice is download an engine, learn it as much as you can, find where it clicks for you, and don't box yourself into one specific thing. Even for the finest of artists, I think it is important to have an understanding of what's happening under the hood on a computer. I think this modern world, you, sure, you can make a living as an amazing artist, you know, amazing model or texture painter, but I think if you can sort of force yourself into like maybe blueprint scripting or a little bit of programming, which is what we had to do in the old days of visual effects, it really makes you invaluable. A little bit of technical skills with the creative skills is the magical recipe that makes you super valuable to companies out there, whichever industry, and honestly, if you're a master of a high-end game engine, you really don't have to limit yourself to one particular industry. You can just see how your career evolves and see what you like doing. Listening to the Virtual Production Podcast. Special thanks to my guest, Kim Library. This episode was written and hosted by me, Noah Kadner. This episode was edited and mixed by Corey Abel. The Virtual Production Podcast is a co-production of The Virtual Company and Abel Cine. We love virtual production and would also love to work with you. So please visit our websites and drop us a line if we can help. You can find us at ablecine.com and thevirtual.co. The Virtual Production Podcast is brought to you in part by Puget Systems, an integrator specializing in high-end desktop systems perfectly suited to virtual production. Please visit them at pugetsystems.com. Please also let us know if there's a subject or a guest you want us to have on the show. 
And if you like what you heard today, please consider giving us a five-star review, subscribing, and telling all your friends about us. Thanks again, and see you next time.